Please take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Let me pray before we move any further. Our Father, I come to you and I ask that in these moments that you, um, Lord, that you clearly reveal not only what your word means, but Father, how we apply it to our lives. Father, we understand that there's a level of, of understanding that we can have apart from the Holy Spirit, but we don't want that. Father, we ask for the Spirit of God to reveal the Word of God to us, to make the children of God more like the Son of God, that in everything that we do, we honor you. Lord, would you guide my thoughts and the thoughts of everyone within listening ear here today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I hope you've got a way to take notes today, um, whether it's on paper or maybe on your phone. Take notes so that you can refer back to them periodically as we work through this series on the book of Romans. Romans is perhaps the deepest book of all the Pauline epistles. Um, Paul takes a deep dive into what we call the shuns. There's the condemnation, there is the uh, justification, sanctification, and, and so many more. Two weeks ago, we wrapped up chapter 1, and today we're starting chapter 2. So let's jump in there. Romans chapter 2, verse 1 through 11 is what we're going to read now. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed." He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation for, excuse me, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For God shows no partiality. If you go back and you think about uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, when we were there over the last several weeks, Paul outlined the fact that the whole world, everyone in the world, is caught up in the original sin of Adam and Eve. And that sin affects everything. It affects every single person who has ever lived since Adam and Eve, including Adam and Eve. Mankind is hostile towards God. We find in chapter 1 that <clears throat> this hostility causes them to descend into idolatry, um, to, to futile thinking. Uh, it contaminates their bodies through sexual sin. Then you get to chapter 2, and the main theme of what we're going to talk about is this, is that God judges the moralist. So you think about all of chapter 2, and you think about this being the theme. God judges the moralist. A moralist believes that everyone can think better, do better, and be better. They typically believe that to, that, uh, to the extent that this self-proclaimed morality is going to be enough. It's, it's going to be enough 
for fellowship with God, enough for right standing in society, enough for good things to come in this life and in the life after. They think that if they can just be a good person, then everything is going to be just fine. But what Paul's about to do in chapter 2 is blow that philosophy out of the water. You think about our culture here for just a moment. Um, We're saturated with the idea that you live your truth. You live your truth, and you're going to be just fine. So whatever your truth is, you go with that, and you're going to be just fine in, in life. There's a lot of self-proclaimed Christians who, who live in that way. Uh, they claim Christianity, but their sinful actions are somehow acceptable because it made them feel good. If it feels good, it must be okay. If God allows it to be pleasurable, it must be okay, right? Uh, a good chance that around the Thanksgiving table, um, people may talk about someone who has, who has passed away, and they say, oh, man, that was such a good person they got to be in heaven right now because of that, or my all-time favorite. They've got their angel wings now because of how good they were here on earth. The problem is that it doesn't matter how good a person is. If they die without having repented of their sin and given their lives to Jesus, they are not in the presence of God in death. They're spending an eternity in hell. And I I can just imagine as Paul writes this part of the book of Romans that his heart is broken over the lie that anything apart from salvation through faith in Jesus alone is sufficient for avoiding the wrath of God. And as I approach preaching on this chapter, I do so with brokenness over people in our families, um, in, in in our city, maybe even in our church, who believe that goodness somehow earns them a place in heaven. And this brokenness should prompt in all of us a desire to speak the truth, not our truth, but the truth about what really and truly saves a person. Now, I've entitled today's sermon, No Partiality with God. Okay? No partiality with God. That's verse 11 there. At the end of the section I just read for you is just those simple words, for there is no partiality with God. It doesn't matter who you are, truth is truth, and truth cannot be ignored. So let's work through these verses, and you're going to write these points down as we go through it, okay? First, we see that God's judgment is on the hypocrite. God's judgment is on the hypocrite. I'm going to start reading in verse verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, we know a hypocrite. A hypocrite does one thing and they, they, they say one thing, excuse me, and they do something else. Nobody, nobody, nobody likes a hypocrite. If you like a hypocrite, we need to have your mind checked, right? Nobody likes a hypocrite because they say one thing and they do something completely different. Nobody likes someone who judges someone, but then they don't hold themselves to that same standard. And Paul says, you've got no excuse when you do this. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, for Paul, in this culture that he's writing to, here's where the the rubber really meets the road. If you go back to chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, Paul's largely talking to Gentiles. He's talking about this paganism that the Gentiles are often caught up in. He's talking about the sin that they have got to avoid, that, that goes along with culture, but you've got to push it away. The Gentiles of that day, 
are immersed in this deep sin. They are the world of our day that's not a part of the church. They don't care anything about religion. They live in whatever pleasurable sin they want to live in. And I can imagine Paul writing these verses in chapter 1 and thinking, and the Jews are, are, are thinking, yeah, Paul, give it to them. Let them have it. But then Paul gets to chapter 2 and the narrative and the, and the audience, the intended audience, completely shifts around. So now Paul is directing his writing at the Jews. And what he's saying is going to sting really, really badly. If you go back to the Old Testament, the book of Amos, the, the prophet Amos does this very same thing. He starts off the book, the book of Amos, the, 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 the narrative of Amos, and he's absolutely letting this, these pagan nations and, and cultures have it. He, he names them. You've got Damascus and Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab. Even Judah is blasted for their paganism. And you can imagine as, as Amos is, is writing and as he's prophesying that the nation of Israel is going, yeah, give it to them, let them have it. But then, here's what he says. Amos gives a, but thus says the Lord. Right in the middle of chapter 2 of the book of Amos, he says, but thus says the Lord. And the tables turn around completely. And Amos says that the nation of Israel, in God's eyes, was the worst of all of them. Why? Because of their hypocrisy. Knowing the truth, they judged others based on the truth, but they didn't hold themselves to the same standard. They were hypocrites. They were religious hypocrites. And so I ask you here today, I wonder if maybe you know the truth, maybe you speak the truth, you hold others to the truth, but do you live the truth for yourself? Do you live the truth for yourself? You can probably quote the truth from beginning to end. You can have large passages of Scripture memorized. But what good is it if you don't live it for yourself? How arrogant of us to think that we will escape the judgment of God when that's the true nature of our hearts, when we are hypocrites. How arrogant of us. Next, we see God's judgment on the hard heart. God's judgment on the hard heart. And we find this in verses five, excuse me, four through five. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness, Paul says, his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Once again, he's talking to religious people here. These are the ones who think they've got all their stuff together. Now, Psalm 145 tells us that God is kind and merciful. Um, Exodus chapter 34 says that God is compassionate and gracious. Over and over and over again throughout the Bible, we see the nature of God in, in terms of those attributes. What we can oftentimes consider the good attributes of God, right? But Paul says that a person better not presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. That means you can't just suppose that because those are attributes of God that you're safe with him. Don't mistake God's kindness for leniency or permissiveness. If you jump ahead to Romans chapter 11, verse 22, it tells us that God is kind. But in the very same verse, as soon as it says God is kind, it also says that he is severe. He cannot tolerate sin. Some people sin... <clears throat> And they think they're getting away with it because there's no immediate consequences. 
that they see coming from their actions. Oh, nothing happened. So I must be good. I can do it again. They think that God doesn't see or doesn't care or doesn't know about their sin. That's the Jews, right? They, they thought that they were exempt from God's wrath because they believed that they had an automatic favor with him for their religious adherence. Look at all the good things I'm doing, God. Look at the ways I'm following the law. Look at the ways that I'm obeying you in this and this and this and this. And they thought they were good and safe from the wrath of God because of their religious adherence. But that's not how it works. Paul says that God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance. His kindness is not there to excuse your sin. Just go do whatever you want to. It's there to lead us to repentance. I hope that the goodness of God that you see around you and in your life doesn't lead you to a mindset of, oh, because God is good, I can do what I want. I hope that the goodness of God leads you to want to do what is right and honor him because of that goodness. A lot of people presume on God's kindness that on the day of judgment, <clears throat> God's going to say, oh, you know what? It's okay. Come on in. You're good. But they never repent of their sin. They never humble themselves before God. I think a lot of people also, in this idea of presuming on the kindness of God, I think that a lot of people kind of point to a religious experience as their way into heaven. And they think some kind of action or their baptism or their an emotional, maybe an emotional response to a sermon is going to give them a right standing with God. But God's grace is poured out on those who genuinely repent of their sin and give their lives to Jesus. And it's not that they're perfect. I'm certainly not perfect. You're not perfect. This side of heaven will never be perfect. But they're not characterized by their hard-heartedness anymore. They're characterized by their submissiveness, their heart posture of submissiveness to God. Paul's clear, but because of your wrath, excuse me, your heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We then find God's judgment on the disobedient. <clears throat> on the disobedient, it starts in verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now I want you to remember here, we are not saved by our works. Only faith in Jesus saves us. But our works are an indicator of our salvation. Now, in this point and in the next one, Paul is going to give us two contrasts, okay? There's the saved and the unsaved, and then there's, in the next contrast, there's the unsaved and the saved. Here's the first contrast. Those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, so that's the, the saved. And then there are those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. For the one, God will give eternal life. For the other will be wrath and fury. Not my words, these are the words from Scripture. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, Jesus taught that God will repay each person according to what he has done. To the unrepentant sinner who continually disobeys God, God is going to repay with righteous judgment. For the repentant sinner who seeks to obey God with their life, there is eternal life. 
The issue that every single human being has got to wrestle with and decide is if they are going to obey God or not. And the Bible is very clear that God's judgment is against those who do not obey. Then we see God's judgment on all who do evil. Starting in verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. And here's the second contrast. There's the unsaved, tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. And then there's the saved, glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. If you do not obey God, I want you to hear me on this. If you do not obey God, then you are evil. I'm not a murderer. I'm not someone that the world would characterize as as being evil. I'm not on death row for anything. No. If you do not obey God, you are evil. If you point to things like, look at me, look at all I do for the church, look at how I I give to those who need it, look at how I don't blow up in anger when somebody does something against me. If you point to those things as a proof of your salvation, you are in a sad state because your answer shows that you think your salvation is tied to what you do. Your answer cannot be anything but I am a poor, wretched sinner who, apart from the grace of God that is offered me through Jesus Christ, would be doomed for hell. But the free gift of salvation that I have accepted, through that I am now eternally secure and bound for the presence of God in heaven. That's the only answer that will cut it. That's the only answer that will allow you into heaven. I have a right as a child of God through Jesus alone and faith in him alone. Verses 9 through 11 shows us that everyone who does evil is under the wrath of God, and God shows no partiality whatsoever. It's not one truth for one person and another truth for somebody else. It's truth for every human being. I've got a book um, entitled Unchristian. And this book analyzes the results of a very extensive um, nationwide study that was conducted by Barna years ago in which they sought to compare the lives of Christians with non-Christians to see what the actual differences are. Um, By the way, a lot of times I was kind of skeptical of these things because you wonder, okay, well, who do they count as a Christian? Um, Just those who self-identify? Because a lot of people self-identify as a Christian. But in this survey, they didn't count you as a Christian unless you could articulate the gospel and affirm your belief in it. So that's at least a little bit of a threshold there. The survey was completely anonymous so that people would be honest about their lifestyles. And here's some of what they found. They found that Christians cuss less in public. They didn't say anything about private or in front of grandma. It was just less in public. They give a little bit more to the poor. Remember, this is generalization here, okay? They give a little more to the poor. Um, they're less likely to recycle. And I, I kind of think, I think, I think maybe that's just because the world's going to burn up one day anyway. I don't, I don't know. Christians give more money to religious nonprofits. 
That's, yeah, I can see that. Christians on the whole buy fewer lottery tickets. <laughs> now nah, I'm going to keep going. Never mind. You think about that, you think about those things, and those are okay, those are encouraging, right? Those are encouraging little, little tidbits there. We're really putting Jesus on display in those areas. However, here's what else they found. They found that Christians are just as likely to visit a pornographic website as those who are not. Just as likely to get drunk. Just as likely to do illegal drugs or take prescription medicines not prescribed to them. You say, well, that's not me in any of those ways. Well, but what about these three? They are just as likely to be willing to lie to get out of a difficult situation. They are just as likely to have intentionally done something to get back at someone within the last 30 days. They're just as likely to have said an unkind thing about someone behind their back in the last 30 days. Now, in this study, 84% of non-Christians, okay, 84% of non-Christians said that they knew at least one believer personally, but only 15% thought that person's lifestyle was significantly different than their own. One non-Christian in the survey described his perception of conservative Christians as illogical, empire builders, prone to violence, and people who cannot generally live peacefully with those who don't believe what they believe. J.D. Greer made the comment one time, he said, religion is often just a thin veneer papered over a heart that is still every bit as sinful as everyone else's. And religion by itself is powerless to change our hearts. It might change our behavior, but nothing deeper. Something or someone has got to do the work that we cannot do for ourselves in changing our hearts. We can work to not be a hypocrite. We can work to not have a hard heart or to be disobedient or to not be a person the Bible describes as evil. But our work is futile. Unless something or someone does the work that we cannot do for ourselves. But folks, that someone is Jesus. That's what we celebrate every Christmas and we see the decorations all around us. This is time of year. That's what we celebrate this Christmas season. We celebrate the coming of the only hope that we have for the wrath of God being pushed back. We celebrate the fact that we don't have to be lost in our sin and separation from God. He offers a free gift of salvation to anyone who would believe with no prejudice or no exclusion or no partiality whatsoever. If there's anything in this survey that I shared with you just a moment ago, if there's anything that it tells me, it tells me that my attempts at self-righteousness are futile and I cannot cut it on my own. Oh, but what love the Father has lavished on us that we could and should be called the children of God. How? Through Jesus Christ. So you read Romans chapter 2 and you think, man, what hope is there, right? You read all these things, the hypocrite, the disobedient, the hard heart, all of these things, and you think, what hope is there for actually pushing back the wrath of God? I can guarantee you that there is hope in Jesus, and Jesus alone. N.T. Wright was a, um, or is a British Anglican theologian 
And he wrote a, a fantastic little book that has devotionals <clears throat> that go along with the, the, the book of Romans. So you get to a passage and he has a, 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 a devotional that goes along with it. For this section that we've been talking about today, here's what he writes. He says, couldn't we just give him one more chance? The young man had been working at the factory for just over a month and he's performing reasonably well, but there was a problem. He had a violent temper. And he would suddenly fly off the handle for little or no reason and throw things at anyone within range. The foreman had sat him down, looked at him in the eye, and spoken to him like an older brother. It won't do, he had said. You have to learn to control yourself. This is a warning. Do it again, and I have to report you to the management. But he did it again and again. And the foreman, with a heavy heart, because he quite liked the lad, had gone to the manager the manager was angry that a problem like this had gone on for weeks without his knowing, and he was all for firing the young man on the spot. But the foreman pleaded for him, just one more chance. I'll have another word with him. Let's see if he can pull himself together. It didn't last. Three days later, someone accidentally knocked into the young man in the canteen, spilling tea down his shirt. He flew into a rage, threw the rest of the scalding liquid into the man's face, and punched him viciously in the stomach. It was a sad moment for the foreman, but he and the manager had no choice. The lad had been given a chance, and he'd used it to make matters worse, not better. N.T. Wright continues, At the heart of Paul's view of God's final judgment, here and later in the letter, lies a picture of God not unlike that of the foreman in the story. God is kind, not kindly in the sense of indulgent, a sleepy old uncle who doesn't care too much about what people get up to, but kind in the sense of genuinely caring and understanding and trying to find the best way forward for every single human being. If this were not so, if, for instance, God was essentially mean, ready to pounce on any and every wrongdoing, we would all have been blown off the planet long ago. But that's not how it is. God is patient Again and again, he gives people the chance to get it together, to turn to him in repentance and trust and to find their lives coming back into shape. That's the end of the right quote there. Folks, please don't misunderstand God. He is patient and kind, offering his free gift of salvation to anyone who would believe in his son, Jesus. But for those who reject Jesus, God because he is holy and righteous, has no choice but to condemn the sinner, turning them loose to chase after their wants and their desires, and it's ultimately to their detriment. Now, I imagine there may be two different kinds of people here today. There may be more, but these are the two that I want to address directly. First of all, I believe there, there could be, and I pray, that there would be the sinner who is unrepentant. And I pray that because today could be the day that your unrepentant heart repents. God cannot tolerate your unrepentant heart. His invitation is for you to humbly submit yourself to him. And his promise is that anyone who would call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then secondly, I think that there could be sinners who have repented, but they're wandering. Sinners who have repented, but are wandering. And maybe Satan has fooled you into somehow thinking that you can take your foot off the gas of holiness and of service to the Lord. You were saved from sin to go sin no more. 
You were saved from your evil works to go serve the Lord with good works. And no matter which place you find yourself in today, humble yourself in the sight of God and he will lift you up. In a moment when we sing, I want to invite you just to come up here to the front and pray if you would like. I'm going to be up here. If you'd like to pray with me, I'd be happy to pray with you. Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you that it calls us to not be stuck in the mire of sin, but it calls us to live as sons and daughters of the Most High God, finding salvation through Jesus alone. Father, we pray that you are honored in this place today, and we pray that if there's any heart in here that is standing in pride, in unrepentance, that today would be the day that repentance takes place. Humble us, Father. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in our place. And it's in his holy and precious name I pray. Amen.